there and welcome to Jeff Does Vegas 2022 in review. As the year comes to an end, I've decided to take a little trip back in time and reshare some of my favorite conversations from the last 12 months of the podcast. For the first episode of 2022 in review, I wanted to pay tribute to the amazing entertainers who took time out of their busy lives to jump on the show and chat with me. Singers, musicians, showgirls, comedians, even an exotic dancer all made it on the podcast this year. We covered a ton of great topics, and it was an absolute blast talking to all of these incredibly talented people. Enjoy. After catching a late-night viewing of the 1995 classic Showgirls, starring Elizabeth Berkley, I thought it might be fun to chat with someone who's actually lived the Las Vegas showgirl lifestyle and see just how close to reality the movie actually was. After all, the director and writer claimed to have spoken with dozens of people working in the Vegas entertainment biz so they could get it right. So, did they? Who better to tell us than a legit Vegas showgirl? Back in episode number 125, I was joined by Danny Elizabeth, who's a former cast member of the legendary shows Jubilee and Crazy Girls. We did some character analysis, shared theories on why people love to watch the movie over and over again, and we compared Danny's showgirl life to Nomi Malone's, including the audition process. Was Danny's anything like Nomi's? Not even, not even close. Way different. And now, uh, you know, keep in mind, maybe in the 80s, you know, there were more cringy moments for dancers. But when I auditioned, uh, you know, in the last, I'd say, 25, 20 years or so, things have become a lot more corporate. And, you know, there's HR departments and uh, PC, politically correct moments that have to be honored. So when I auditioned, it's just like going to any other audition. You, you know, you wear a leotard or, you know, briefs and uh, like a two-piece. And it actually is a very extensive um, uh, audition process. We had to do... uh, learn tap choreography, we had to learn um, jazz choreography, and then we had to do ballet um, across the floor. So it took a few hours to get through it. Um, And then after that, yes, uh, they do bring you into a private room. Um, And Diane Palm, she uh, was the company producer for Jubilee. And she started in Jubilee when it first opened as a, a, a dancer in it. And then she moved up. And so then because Don Arden was no longer around and uh, the company producer Fluff, she took Diane in as the assistant. And then when I finished, she was now the company producer, Um, but it was very professional. And then they would, uh, after the audition, if they kept you uh, one by one, take you into a private room, like a little office and they could take one at a time and um, you would take your top off so that she could see, uh, because they also wanted to make sure that um, you didn't have, uh, implants because that was not preferred. They preferred small and pretty over huge and uh, fake. So um, they would do that, but it was very, felt very comfortable and she was very professional and uh, very caring about it. Uh, and then after that, we'd go back out into the main room and then they would also uh, measure us our height. So we'd stand up against the wall and she would write that down as well, just to make sure that no one's lying on the resume because we all try to get a little bit extra in there. Because if you don't know, um, the taller you are, uh, the better it is to land a showgirl job. 
And then that's it. And then you go home and you wait for a phone call. And then when she called me and she was like, yes, Danny, so we'd like to offer you the position. And they have two different positions. You're either a bluebell or a showgirl, um, which is like the bluebell are covered dancers and the showgirl um, showgirls are uh, topless dancers, which Diane said that she didn't even really like to use the term showgirl because she thought that showgirl didn't uh, didn't honor how much you actually dance. She thinks because uh, back when this whole showgirl thing came about, the showgirls were more statuesque. So they, they were the six two Amazon uh, women that wore the big giant costumes in the back. And then all the other dancers would be in front and some were topless, some weren't. And now that has changed. And at Jubilee, if you were the showgirl or topless track, you still dance just as much as the covered track did. But um, yeah, so when she called me and, and asked me if I would take the position, I of course jumped right on it and then went into uh, moved to Vegas and we had about a month long, um, a month long rehearsal process. So what you're saying then is at no point did anybody hand you a, a, a bowl of ice and say, take your top off and show me your, mm, you know, I, again, I mean, speaking of cringy moments that that was without a doubt, one of the cringiest. Super cringy. I was like, whoa, no wonder why she stormed out of there. I would too. And <laughs> no, it's uh, it's so not like that. It's so much more, at least from my experience. Again, I don't know if somebody in the 80s felt differently, but I know at Jubilee, it, it wasn't like that. Even when Don Arden, the head producer, and he, I've heard stories that he might have been a little bit, had some of those aspects of like the sleazy producer moments, but he was uh, a very professional, um, you know, producer and cared about his dancers to the end. So I would have to say, yeah, that's definitely a very embellished um, scene. (laughs) Up next, we go all the way back to episode number 102 and my chat with Enoch Augustus Scott, who's been part of the Vegas entertainment scene for almost 20 years. Enoch got his start in Vegas as part of the iconic Tony and Tina's wedding, and he currently stars as Xenoch, the MC in the hilarious zombie burlesque at the V Theater in Planet Hollywood. Enoch and I chatted about his early days in entertainment, some of his early Vegas gigs, and he shared what might be the most Vegasy Vegas story I've ever heard. I had to kick a hooker out a week and a half ago. <laughs> I saw that on your Twitter. Now, this is probably the most um, Vegas entertainer story that I've ever heard in my life. So I'm going to need you to share it because it would just, the tweet just absolutely slayed me. It's like in the front row, even up against the wall. In our theater stream, there's only one aisle. And so there's only one way to get out. So if you're up against the wall, you have to cross over everyone and get out. Um, so come in late, this guy and this chick who was very, very pretty and, you know, very, very um, Vegasly dressed and this guy who looked like just, he, she was completely out of his league. It just, anyway, looked like, it looked like an arrangement to me. So it was cool for a while. And then she just starts getting louder and louder. And just like, there are those people who want to like, who want to just heckling you and just like not stopping and like interrupting scenes. And she's just getting progressively louder. And finally I had to turn to her and be like, Hey, it's too much now. Please stop. Like in front of the audience and stuff, I'm doing this. Like, you know, please, you know, it's too much. You have to stop. Um, turn to the guy and I'm like, Hey, you have to take care of this. You have to handle her. 
And she's like, no, I want you to handle me. It's like, what I wanted to say is like, I didn't dial like 976 girls direct to you today. So please, I'm not handling you. I didn't, that's not my job. Um, and so I was like, listen, if you can be cool, listen, I'm literally saying this in front of the audience. I was like, if you can be cool, you can stay. But if you say one more thing, you've got to go. And I was like, audience, is it cool if she stays? And they're like, okay. So then like, there's an adage, there's the two quiet moments. I'm off stage. I come back and like, she yells out something again and you could hear the audience just go like, <gasps> and then I was like, and then I come back out and I, I'm trying to do this tender speech where I go like, you know, it doesn't matter if you're white, bled, you know, white, black, red, yellow, blue, or, and I'm about to say green, but of course people also do that phrase and say purple. So every now and then people like to scream out purple. So she of course screams out purple. And I was like, okay, I just can't anymore, honey. You got to go. And she's like, what? No, I'm your best friend. I was like, no, you have to go now. Um, and so then I, my stagehands, like the ushers aren't there. So I have to call my stagehands. One is Dan. He's a little fit guy, but the other is Silver. And we call him Silverback. He's like six foot three and like this big guy. And so I was like, Dan, Silverback. And you can hear the audience be like, Silverback, um, would you please come escort this young lady out of the theater? And so she gets up and is walking out and just talking shit. They're like, I can't believe it. I'm such an awful person. I can't believe it. Just all the way. And then he is sitting there. And I was like, no, bro, you got to go too. You got to return this hooker to her pimp. Because you got a defective hooker, honey. You got a hooker that don't know how to act at a show. Like, you want to bring a hooker to a show? Great. But, you know, she has to know how to act, honey. Like, I've... So, yeah. So, I... The guy out too. The guy, I couldn't believe the guy was just sitting there. I was like, no, baby, you need to take her back to where you found her. <laughs> I, I do love the fact that the dude was just kind of like, oh, I'm not with her. I don't know who she is or what. Man alive, honey. Man alive, honey. Take her back to Tropicana. Um, <laughs> and then the thing is, like, the night before, there was this 11 year old kid who read as trans to me. I thought it was a boy, but then there were nails and stuff. So to me, it looked like a trans kid. And, uh, but 11 years old, and I couldn't believe it. So I always have a bit with it, if there's kids in the audience. I'm like, you know, rah, rah, rah. Um, and, uh, but I'm doing that final speech. This night's before the hooker gets kicked out, you know, a completely different night. I'm doing that final tender speech. And the kid goes like, uh, she's like, honestly, just says during a break, which is the nice way to heckle or not heckle, but just talk back. She's like, honestly, I can't wait to meet you. And my heart was broken. I couldn't like finish my monologue. So and we don't do meet and greet anymore because of COVID. But I went back after the show. I just snuck out and like met the kid. It turns out like the kid had wanted to, they wanted to come there for their birthday. Their mom tells me to zombie burlesque in Vegas to see my stupid show for their birthday. And then it's like a mom and the kid and a grandma. And like, there's a service dog too that I didn't even notice until that moment. I was like, that service dog sat through my whole show. And it's loud and crazy. It was fine and polite, but like a hooker can't sit through. <laughs> According to a recent report, strip clubs in the United States are forecasted to pull in roughly $7.4 billion in revenue this year. In Las Vegas alone, there are over 20 different clubs for people to visit. Often, visiting a strip club in Vegas is a person's first experience with this type of establishment. And if you've never been to a strip club, you've probably got a lot of questions. Back in episode number 115 of the podcast, I was joined by Kayla, who is currently a dancer at a gentleman's club in Las Vegas. 
We covered a lot of ground in our conversation and she answered a ton of questions about everything from strip club etiquette to what her daily routine entails. And she even answered the question she gets asked the most. How and why did she pick this industry as her career? It wasn't really my idea, but I originally was working at like some boba restaurant, you know, just, you know, just like a little restaurant and I, I hated it. It just wasn't good. And, you know, I was broke and I didn't have any money. And my friend was like, hey, like, why don't you just dance with me? And she was working with me at that time at the restaurant. And I was like, I don't know if I can be in a two piece and I can't even walk in high heels and I'm skinny and like I have no tits. Like, I don't know how to dance. Like, you know, like. I just don't know. I don't know if I can do it. She's like, just try it out. Like, I'll go with you and, you know, I'll show you how to do it and yada, yada, yada. So I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to do it, you know? So I ended up auditioning and I got it. And I worked that, I think I worked like the next night, which was my 20th birthday. <laughs> so I got hired the day before my birthday, my 20th birthday. So yeah, I just went in and danced and yeah made money and that just never looked back <laughs> tell me a little bit about the audition process to become a dancer because i've got friends that are uh, involved in various facets of the entertainment industry and i've heard about their audition process um share your audition experience with me so you do have to call and see like when auditionings are so um, mostly they're like every single day. Um, they ask you to come in from a certain time. They ask you to bring a two piece and a high heels. So then you just, you know, you go in, you talk to the hiring manager, the house mom is there. And then they make you go on stage for about like three songs. So the first song you do have to take your top off. And at this time when I was young, um, the, the younger you are, you know, the club is going to be like fully nude you know, 18 and up. If you're 21 and up, it's just like, you know, topless. So at the time I was working at a fully nude club, which I hated. I was really uncomfortable doing it, but I got used to it. So the auditioning, I just had to go on stage for three songs. The first song, you know, take off your top. And then I think the second song, take off your bottoms. And then the third song, you know, you kind of just dance around the pole. So I went in as early as possible <laughs> that they told me to come in because I didn't want to catch any customers or anything like that. So, but yeah, that's pretty much the auditioning process. That seems absolutely terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're butt ass naked on stage, like in front of strangers and you've never done it before. Yeah. It's a lot of anxiety. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I can't even imagine. I get changed in the dark, Kayla. <laughs> so, I mean, to have that put on top of me would just be like next level anxiety. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you had, it was a, a friend or a coworker that got you involved in dancing initially. Did you find it helpful to have that person able to kind of give you support and, and help you out as you, you made your way into the business? I did. Yeah. It was really comforting, you know, cause I never really thought to dance, but when she brought it up, I was like, you know what? Like it felt good. that I wasn't by myself. And it also felt good that there was other girls there that, you know, knew that I was new and they were really sweet and helpful. I mean, of course, you're going to run into girls that are really rude and, you know, talk shit to you and stuff. But, um, but yeah, no, I definitely had the support and I, I felt comfortable. So that dynamic in the dressing room among the girls has got to be uh, interesting. And I use the air quotes when I say interesting. Uh, I mean, I've got 
uh, lots of female friends and I kind of sort of um, hear the drama that's going on in their lives and amongst each other and such. So I can only imagine what it's like in in that situation, in your situation, in that dressing room. Are there people that kind of help keep things in line and keep people moving forward and try to avoid the drama or, or how, how does that all sort of shake out amongst the ladies? Mm, I've never really seen anything crazy happen to be quite honest. I mean, I've worked at a bunch of different clubs and yeah, of course, like I've heard girls about to like, you know, get physical and, you know, talking back and forth and, you know, disrespecting each other. But, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, they kind of just handle it themselves. Like, if they fight, they're going to fight. You know, I don't know what's the outcome of that. I'm assuming, you know, management will come in and be like, you guys can't do that. But some clubs, I'm assuming that are a little bit different. They're kind of like, you handle it, you do your own or whatever, I, I'm guessing, you know. But I've never really seen anything that crazy. So I can't really say anything much about that. <laughs> so, but I mean, of course, defend yourself, you know, but. I've never gone to that point. Thank God. I mean, I've had gone to arguments with girls, but not in like in a physical fight. And I've never really started, you know, it's usually them because they're drunk or they're just stupid, you know, but I'm just mind my business and I work and I go home. So in other words, it's, it's like any other job you go in, you do your thing, you leave except butt ass naked. Exactly. Butt ass naked. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Las Vegas-based comedian Dennis Blair fell into the world of comedy quite accidentally. In the late 1970s, he was performing in bars around New York City, and tired of being ignored by audiences, one night he decided to mess with the lyrics to a popular song. The rest, as they say, is history. Over his 40-year-long career, he's worked with the likes of comedy legends Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers, and opened for musicians like Tom Jones, Gloria Estefan, and the Beach Boys. But it was the 18 years that he spent as the opener for the late, great George Carlin that really caught my attention. Dennis joined me back on episode number 131 of the podcast, and not only did we talk about his time on stage working with George, but the offstage times as well. Yeah, a great guy, totally approachable. You know, we go to airports, uh, we take rental cars to the theater. You know, I mean, he'd get the occasional limousine, you know, but uh, as a matter of fact, when he started doing really well, he started chartering planes, which was another wonderful story. But, you know, but when I first was, was with him, I, I'd fly commercial, uh, uh, they'd fly commercial, you know, uh, they fly first class, of course, and as I got out, got on, they'd say, "Keep walking, Dennis. Back to back, back, back with the sweaty pigs or something like that." Um, but uh, yeah, but I mean, people at the airport come, George, how you doing? Hey, how you doing, man? Shake his hand, take a picture, you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, and very funny. And the great thing about George was he was a hermit. He didn't like to hang out too much. He hung out with me backstage because we had a lot, a lot of laughs. Or if we were, you know, in the rental car or the, the car on the way to the gig. But, but once you get to the gig you know, and, and backstage at the gig, but once you get back to the hotel, you don't see each other until the next gig, you know, and that was after my experience with Rodney and, you know, to, to some extent, extent, Joan, it's a great, less can go wrong. <laughs> cause I'm not, cause I don't see George a lot, but when I do see him, it's great. But then, you know, so that's the thing I was very happy about. We won't have too much contact. So I so my dog, whatever, so I don't do something wrong and piss him off. I can only imagine what those car rides with George would have been like. I mean, George, 
the his mind was amazing like it just oh, it, yeah. it seems like he, he he would be the type of person that his his mind would just always be going so i can really only imagine what the car rides were like oh yeah yeah well first of all we both had a jerry lewis uh a period of a jerry lewis obsession for some reason that we just kept doing his book he'd leave me notes with jerry lewis and and, and draw a word balloon that said floyd and you know stuff like that so there was that uh and then um one car ride that we took uh, we came up with these games like the car ride back to the hotel would often be like less than an hour so you know it wasn't a, a too much time but we, we came up with this game it's like We'd, we'd have come up with a premise and then like try to top each other. So one premise was stars, female stars who have the bushiest pubic hair. And George, George won because he said, Rhea Perlman. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah, no, you win. You win. You definitely win on that one. But this is the kind of stuff. But I won one. And this was, you know, this is totally politically correct. But uh, the premise that we came up with is Kennedy's last words. And and I forget what George said, but I came up with, why is my head whistling? <laughs> okay. Now, I'm a horrible person for saying that, but I won. I don't care. Horrible person for laughing at it. <laughs> I won, goddammit. I'm taking that to the grave. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff we do. And then one, once I was with him by himself, the manager could come. So he told me the whole story of his last uh, appearance at the Copacabana. And uh, it's pretty, it was like a 10, 20 minute story. I'm just driving going, I can't believe he's telling me this, you know? Yeah. So that, yeah, we had fun in the car, fun backstage. Uh, and when we, we, we did Vegas, we do like two, two or three weeks at a time. So no one saw him. He was in his room writing his next special probably. Mm-hmm. So I had my, my kids at that time and my wife and we just hang out at the pool and have fun and, and, you know, and see him backstage. Did George like the Vegas crowds? And, and the only reason I ask is he was a very intelligent comic. And I'm not saying that Vegas crowds aren't intelligent because I've been to so many shows and, and they are, and they can be, but I feel like it's a different level. And and with George's comedy, as I say, like it was, it was very intelligent and and it just like, did he like the Vegas crowd? No. (laughs) Does that answer your question? No. (laughs) What else would you like to ask me? (laughs) You know, again, it was um, when we first started, obviously he, I don't think he ever, I think when we first started doing Vegas, he was okay with them. Um, But as time went on, and as we found out that he was having, you know, he had had years of addictions to Vicodin, uh, red wine, and his his heart problems were starting again, and he got grumpier, he, he hated them, absolutely hated them. But at the beginning, they, you know, they the Vegas, Vegas showrooms aren't really made for comedy. I don't think like the ceilings are too high. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a, they're not hot rooms. So he was used to the theaters where they would just come to see him. There are his fans. They come to see George Vegas. It's almost like, well, we can't get into a city Dion. So I don't know. You want to go see this Carlin guy. They don't even know who he is probably half them. And then, you know, he do, he wouldn't hold back, you know? So people are just, um, Oh, he's, he's filthy. He's disgusting. That kind of stuff. So he had, deal with that but um he dealt with it the first um hello we do not eight, 10 10 15 years or something like that but as time went on he just got more and more disenchanted and he just said i hate these guys and once 
I remember I was downstairs in the dressing room and I, I could hear him, not clearly, I could hear a little bit, but I could tell by the, uh, the cadence of the sounds I was hearing that he wasn't doing his act at that moment. <laughs> so I run upstairs and he is ripping the audience a new one. It's like, you know, you fucking people. You got, I, you're sitting there and you're just groaning and, you know, I have a great career and I hate this fucking town and all this. It just went on for like three minutes. And then the funniest thing to me is like, you know, he rips these people saying, you know, so fuck you. I hope you all die in a fire, you stupid fucking people. Then there's a pause and I now like to talk about dogs and cats. <laughs> nothing, like nothing ever happened. <laughs> Which was the thing that I enjoyed. But he did that a few times. And he finally said, you know, I'm not doing Vegas. And he came back to the Orleans maybe two years later uh, because they begged him. And because that was off the strip. And it, those hotels he did off the strip that people would seek him out. So it would be more of his fans. So I think he liked, kind of liked it there. October 21st, 1977, saw the release of what would eventually become one of the best-selling albums of all time, and my personal favorite album of all time, Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. It sold over 43 million copies worldwide, it's 14 times platinum in the US, and it spent a record 530 weeks on the UK album charts. 40 years later, the album was reworked into a musical, which originally opened in London's West End. After a run in Toronto and a tour around the world, it was announced that in the fall of 2022, the Paris Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas would become home to a new resident production of Bat Outta Hell, the musical. On episode number 133 of the podcast, I was joined by Vegas veteran Anne Martinez, who took on the role of Sloan in the production. We talked about some of Anne's past performances around Las Vegas, what makes Bat Outta Hell such a special show, and where her love for the music of Jim Steinman and Meatloaf comes from. Jim Steinman, when he was writing it, he was in college, and uh, he had this dream of writing this kind of Peter Pan-esque musical, and uh, that's the first album. So he actually wanted it to be a musical, and he couldn't find just the backing for it. And in frustration, he was like, oh my God, let's just record it like an album, just so I can have a recording. And so it really was intended to be a musical, the first album. And then quite accidentally, the album blew up because like everyone just was going crazy about it. So everything Jim wrote, all of his music and that Meatloaf was singing, it was always intended to be a theatrical for a, a play. And so when I, when I got this job and the producers told me that, I, I was like, oh my God. And I, I just went home and I, you know, got a glass of wine, turned the lights out, and just was like, I'm going to listen to this whole album front to back, knowing that it was meant to be a musical. And I, it was a totally different experience. I kind of understood, like, you know, they have those, like, pauses, and then they're, like, the, sometimes they're, like, talking before something. And I was like, oh, my God, that's what he meant this whole time. It's like the, the music took on a whole new meaning. And uh, all of his stuff, knowing that with his entire canon, um, really kind of added a, a different kind of a weight to already brilliant music. It was the first album I ever bought too. My brother's uh, Blanc Tondo CD Club, remember those? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I still owe Columbia House money, actually. <laughs> I think we all do. We all owe them like five ninety nine. But um, my brothers were like taking pity on me because I was the baby and I wanted a CD, too. And so they're like, OK, fine, you can pick one. And I was trying to be cool. So I I picked Bad Out of Hell because the cover was scary. And I thought, OK, they're going to think I'm cool because I'm picking this really scary one. And um, it came and same thing. I was just enthralled by the album art. And then I remember you know, putting it in and, and Bad Out of Hell started playing. And I was like, whoa, this is awesome. And I, so I've always loved that music. So it was, it was really cool um, when I got the, the call to come and audition for this. You know, I started kind of devouring all the information I could find about the musical and how it came to be. Let's talk about the musical, obviously, because it does have a plot. It's got a storyline. What is the story of Bad Out of Hell? So the... The Cliff's Notes version is, uh, it's this post-apocalyptic city and there's all, there's this kind of motorcycle punk gang and they're all 18 forever, kind of like the Lost Boys in Peter Pan-ish. And uh, they've got all these different characters that are in the group and they all kind of have their little statuses and their leader is named Strat and he's like their, you know, crazy fearless leader. And uh, in this city, and they're always just causing chaos. And they're spray painting stuff, blowing things up, just being a pain in the butt. And there's this huge tower in the middle of the city. And that's where my character, Sloan, lives. And I live there with my husband, Falco, uh, that's played by Travis Clower. And then uh, we have our daughter named Raven, and that's played by Alizé Cruz. And she is turning 18. And uh, the the conflict between the parents is the father wants her to stay inside forever. We keep her locked up in this tower, kind of like Rapunzel. And I secretly want her to go out and have some fun. So she ends up falling in love with the head of this gang, Strat, and chaos ensues. So there's these two love stories, the love story between the, the two young people, and then there's this love story between the parents who had their daughter very young. They were 16. And so they're young parents and very flawed, and they're living in this wild world everything's just con- continual chaos and lots of leather. And uh, it kind of is uh, what happens as the story goes along and uh, both of them, uh, the challenges both of the couples face and if they decide to continue together, all surrounded by music and mayhem and magic and um, Jim Simon's canon. It's really kind of a, a, Peter Pan, Romeo and Juliet, all of this sort of yeah. rolled into one with some just really kick-ass music thrown in. Like, just ridiculously kick-ass music. And last but certainly not least, we head back to episode number 109 for what is not only my favorite interview of the past year, but possibly my favorite interview in the history of doing this podcast. Back in March of 2022, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Las Vegas legend, Carrot Top. He's got a career that spans over three decades, he's toured all over the world, he's made hundreds of TV appearances, and he's been headlining at the Luxor for the past 16 years, with plans to stay there for at least the next three. We chatted about how he got into prop comedy, how he comes up with new ideas for jokes, and whether or not there's ever been a time that he's gone too far with a gag. Oh, absolutely. 
I mean, I think every comic, uh, I usually don't go at the, I never take it. I mean, there's been some I've done in the, you know, everyone has to have one or two. They were like kind of risky. But um, I think most, I wouldn't say all, most comics, I think they need to, uh, they know the, the, the boundaries of what's something that might be considered, not even the word inappropriate, just really just too soon kind of thing. So mm-hmm. anything that has to do with, uh, you know, death, uh, you know, plane crashes, things that are just horrible. Definitely not. I mean, there's no, there's just, there's just no, there's no place for it. Now, the one that I did get away with was the, in fact, it's funny the shelf life of of jokes when the when the plane landed in the Hudson uh-huh. and no one died, you know, boom, you can tell a joke because no one died and that was the whole thing. Hey, no one died, and we have a at the Luxor there's a bodies exhibit and a Titanic museum. I said, you know, just think if one person had died, we'd have the fucking exhibit right here at the Luxor, <laughs> and that would just slay. You know, because no one did die. But yeah, we just think of one person, we would have an exhibit. Hey, go see the Titanic and now go see the Hudson crash, whatever. The yeah. Death on the Hudson. So, um, so I do. Yeah, we try to. I, 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 I mean, I don't have people that tell me what I can do and can't do. I just kind of make the judgment in my, in my own head what I think might be, you know. And now, you know, as long I'm doing this so long now, you know, seeing the, the roller coaster of, of what is inappropriate and what people consider to be inappropriate, you know, it's amazing. I've seen it go. I mean, I've been through the whole you know 30 some years of seeing how audiences kind of react and 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 think and look around uh more than they probably would have back then i mean there's always been you know that there's uh-huh. always been that but but you know it, we're getting a little better i think people are trying to start to say you know we can't be too sensitive so see if you're you're at a comedy show it's kind of our job to be a little mm-hmm. push it a little bit i'm assuming you have got a massive warehouse of of props and we things do. that you kind of have in the across archive. the street. Yeah, there's, it's great. I, mean, I, I love walking through there because you just you see years and years of things that like oh, remember that you should do. Oh my god, that used to be such a great. And sometimes it's fun to reinvent them if, if it's if it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or a part, you know, like the gas pump handle. I used to be a different joke with that one. So I said, where's that damn gas pump? Because I don't want to have to go steal another one. <laughs> so, yeah. How often do you pull stuff out of the archive and throw it in the show? Uh, it depends on, yeah, sometimes a lot of times. I mean, yeah, I'm always changing something. Uh, I like to add something from the archives once in a while to keep it fresh for me. And then a lot of times the audience hasn't seen it too. I have a lot of new fans and I'll, I'll present it in the way that, hey, check this out. This is all stuff from my, from my, uh, the care classics that goes back to, you know, when I started, and that's kind of fun. People that had seen it will, you know, reminisce and remember it. And people that haven't will like, oh, that's cool. You can see that it's how some of it's dated, which makes it cool. So it shows that you have mm-hmm. like stuff that you could tell was, you know, yeah. like a bank tube or something joke where you, they could tell that was, that was, uh, you know, old. I want to talk a little bit about the business of comedy today. Yeah. Who do you find funny? Right now, what are some of your favorite comedians? Nobody, nobody. <laughs> um, no, I like you know. It's funny. I still, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of. I've just answered this question today with just a friend. They were like, "Who's the new up and young, up and coming young comics you like?" And I said, "You know the down, the bad side about doing a show overnight here in Vegas um, is I, and it's not that I can't not do it, but I don't, I don't have the luxury or do. I just don't to try to explore and look for new comics that are out there. Maybe even be a, a you know, a, a mentor to one." Um, I do my show and then I go home and then it's late and then I go I don't want to watch comedy you know I just want to so um, and when I lived in in LA I would go to uh, I would go to the clubs a lot because I would sit in the back and watch all you know there could be 30 comics in a night and sit there mm-hmm. and, go, and just laugh and go wow that guy's going to be I mean I've seen so many that I said that's going to be that guy's going to be huge and they ended up uh, ended up being being huge I mean remember Larry the Cable Guy was a buddy of mine I said this guy 
is gonna be huge and you know boom i knew i just had i knew he had that you know that that shtick too he he just read the phone book and would make you laugh yeah do you think present day now with social media being what it is youtube instagram tiktok that kind of stuff do you think it's easier for people to break into comedy and get discovered or or is it a, a situation where it's just such a diluted that is a great question. People. I wish that was a question I could I could answer with no because I, I I think I say that all the time. I say you know I don't know if I if I if I started again right now today would I would I have the 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 you know the, the energy or the or the uh, the the, the it, I just remember what a long journey it was getting into this. However, like you just said, with the with all the other um, ways like TikTok and all that, there might be more ways to get involved and people see your stuff. Without waiting at a comedy club until two in the morning to perform in front of ten people, so you know there is an advantage probably to that. You know, TikTok crowd, they they they're funny, and a million people see it in one day. Where you know it took me, you know, it would take you you know five years to get a million people to see your stuff. So yeah. there's a there's a good point there. I don't know if that the answer if that, but um, I know a lot of very successful people that have come through the social media aspect of it. Um, which is funny because I'm trying to get do that too, just keep up with the young people, you know, do the TikToks and do all those things and show people, hey, I'm you know I'm still here. Um, talking about Las Vegas, I mean the the residency here at the Luxor. This is 16 years now that yeah, you've 16. been here and just signed back on for another. I think it's uh, it's either four or something. I forget. I think we signed a five year. So I don't know if the four year counts with COVID, uh, but yeah, yeah. At, at this point, does it even matter how many? <laughs> How many more years you well, yeah, you kind of want to know because, I mean you want to know what, yeah I don't know how many have left so you can kind of plan but I, I, mean, I hope I stay here uh, I hope I stay here for, for you know till the end um, but yeah I mean it's been 16 at this, this hotel and then 10 at the MGM and one at Bally's so it's been a it's been a crazy run when you sign a big residency like that I remember doing an interview one time with Meatloaf and I asked him about doing a residency a vegas residency and he had said at the time he was friends with bet midler and she was doing one here and he said oh hell no i have no desire to do something like that i see what she goes through and how much work it is and blah 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 when you first got that offer to come to the luxor for a long term like that was there that apprehension and that concern like oh my god am i going to be able to actually pull this off yes meatloaf actually told me that um, <laughs> oh, really yeah no uh i was very very much uh apprehensive about it in fact i i've said it before uh when i was at the uh, mgm and i was doing kind of a uh, intermittent residency it wasn't like a full-on residency like what we have here it would be like a week i go on the road i go to you know calgary go to and then come back to Vegas and do two weeks and then go back on the road and come back to Vegas. I did like, uh, I think it was eight to 10 weeks a year, sometimes 12, but not, you know, what I'm doing now. Uh -huh. um, and then when David Copfield wanted to have that room full time, which I used to make a joke, David Copfield, I had, how come you left the MGM Granison because David Copfield made him disappear. <laughs> and then I went to the newspaper with that and he called me, like literally said, what the hell? I said, it's a joke. I, you didn't really literally make me disappear. <laughs> David, you're a, you're a magician. Um, uh, and so they, the Luxor, uh, I remember there was a, this room was available or, or it could be. And, uh, my, my people said to me, what do you think about it? And I said, you know, 12 weeks a year, you know, he said, no, no full time. And I said, Oh Jesus, I don't, it's like a desk job. I don't know if I could do, I don't think I could, I don't know if I could do that every night. So yeah. I, we came over, looked at the room. I liked the room. And then I remember thinking, 
oh my god can i do like a like a month and maybe just do and see if i like it i don't know i can't sign off so i think we signed on a year and i was miserable because i i had to stay in the in the hotel which is not a bad thing they have a beautiful hotel but you know going into your go to your room and back the only way to go up and access to your room back was through the elevator inclinator sideways yeah and you know you you never i must go get a cup of coffee or go get lunch or go do this you have to go down the elevator to the people to the crowd to the you know to the casino and it was just it was just it was just a nightmare so I was just I was like, I, I I think I I bit off more than I can chew. I'm not I'm not digging this this at all. And then uh I finally found a house and then I got into a nice little rhythm. Mm-hmm. But it still took the first I think it was 3 years we had. It took a, a long time to get used to doing the show every night in the same city in the same theater. And Vegas is a different, uh, all different beast. I mean, we go on the road, we do road shows. You know, more than half the crowd's got Caretop shirts on. They've, you know, they prepared and planned for a night out at see Caretop. Vegas sometimes are like, oh, we can't get into Blooming Group. We'll go see this Caretop guy. <laughs> it's either blue or orange. And uh, so, uh, but you might you might win them over. Mm-hmm. You know, they come and uh, I used to I used to do that, but I'm afraid to ask now. How many people first time seeing my show? And I was, Ugh. but um. But you win them over, and then you're like, okay, I just got into a rhythm. One day I just got into a rhythm, and I was like, I love this gig. And then I realized, man, I really don't want to leave, and I want to stay mm-hmm. a Vegas guy. And both. I'm just a Vegas guy. People always say, oh, you're just a Vegas guy. I hope you've enjoyed this little trip back in time to revisit some of my favorite conversations with these incredible Las Vegas entertainers. If you want to check out the entire episodes, you can find the links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com or search them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 